Flame Politics, this partnership with the uh, Star Tribune editorial board, John Rash and DJ Tice, both here on the John Schuster Caldwell Banker Hotline. John, I will start with you. The most momentous part of the testimony yesterday was what? And the part of the testimony where you still have the most important question that needs to be answered. So both those. Something that still needs to be answered and the part that stopped you in your tracks. The part that should stop every American in their tracks was her testimony that Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and former President Donald Trump were told that attendees at the Capitol rally were armed and that the former president security checkpoints at his rally be removed, saying they're not here to hurt me and demanding that they don't have to go through the type of screening at every event like that and that we all go through at an airport. If that indeed is accurate, that's an extraordinary charge and puts the former president in direct culpability with the lethal incidents that took place at the Capitol. In terms of what needs to be known is how much um, pre-planning there allegedly could have taken that allegedly could have taken place between the White House all the way up to the president and some of the groups that were most prominent beyond the individuals who attended the Capitol rally, but Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, and others. And if there indeed was some kind of between either the group that you know was tasked with January 6th, including Rudy Giuliani and Roger Stone and others that was discussed yesterday, or all the way up through the White House and perhaps the chief of staff himself. So that, that clearly needs to be further examined as well. Doug, same for you. Well, I think uh, everything John says is right. Uh, you know, I think that I guess what needs to be sorted out at some point is what exactly is the nature of the evidence for all of these various claims uh, as Attorney General Merrick Garland looks at the possibility of, of seeking an indictment of uh, uh, prosecutions and, of course, above all, a prosecution that would involve Trump. You, you have to start to get down to, you know, what is direct evidence, what is has documentation, what is hearsay, what is second and third hand hearsay, mm-hmm. and how yep. much actual uh, you know, usable evidence uh, is there. I, you know, I kind of feel for Garland because the pressure for him to come out of this with some kind of uh, prosecution, I think, is is pretty enormous. Uh, but he has to apply a different standard to it than the than the media does, and and then the politicians do, who you know, put it simply, have more than one motive uh, in all of this. So I, you know, I think I'll, that is kind of getting. Uh, uh, treated pretty lightly at this point. Uh, the, I, you know, third-hand hearsay is being treated the same as something that one was in the room and, and heard directly, that sort of thing. I think that's a very important point, and we all know that hearsay has played key parts in other cases, but it is different than if you're right there. I, I, Doug, I just want to stay with Merrick Garland. Merrick Garland is in such a unique position where 
the party that he's with, most of them desperately want this to happen. They look at this and say, how is this not criminal? Then, of course, he's in the unique position where because of the role of the Trump candidacy and Mitch McConnell, even after the the death of Antonin Scalia in mid-February, stopped that, it's it's just an awkward position for Merrick Garland to be in and just and to say, I'm separating all of this and I'm doing my job. And even if he does that perma- perfectly, DJ, about 75 percent of the population probably say, well, you only did it for reasons A and B, even if you did it right to the letter of the law. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard to know where exactly to, to let the. Ultimately, the responsibility lie for this, I guess, because the whole thing's a mess. I mean, yes, Garland yeah. is conflicted as he could possibly be, but so is the whole Department of Justice. Yeah, so right. is the whole FBI. Uh, and, and needless to say, the politicians, you know, being politicians, have political motives, and, and that's on both sides. And there's no way that this process can end in a in in a pursuit of justice that that has genuine credibility unless we can create some new sort of tribunal that that actually convinces you almost need something like the the Warren commission uh you know for the uh, the Kennedy assassination uh which of course <laughs> didn't didn't avoid controversy either to no, this very day so. but uh you know you had some of the most respected uh, people in the country, uh, you know, representing the far left, the far right. Uh, and and it was outside of all the existing institutional structure. I think that's almost what you'd need to have a result that had any credibility. And then, yeah, at best, you'd have a repeat of the, of the Warren report <laughs> to settle it, yeah. right? I don't even know how that would be viewed as neutral in, in, in any way. John, who is the number one person? Yeah. John, who's the number one person we have not heard from yet that, at least in the formal hearings, may have been interviewed behind the scenes, but you would like her or him to be front and center and face questions to bring greater clarity to what precisely happened? Former President Donald Trump. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I think that, you know, he has resisted the entire idea of this House panel and has denied all aspects of it, including took to social media, Truth Social, his social network, to deride the witness yesterday. But ultimately, under oath, I think that it would be appropriate that he answer questions. Short of that, certainly... Mark Meadows, his chief of staff, who knows the truth on all of these issues, but has resisted coming forward with the panel. Um, and I think that, you know, he should give at least the minimum that his young, then 25-year-old aide was willing to give when she came forward and, and said, you know, that she would testify. So I think that we should expect no less of her boss, who is serving America, not just the president, as the chief of staff when he's in that role. And so I think that he should come forward as well. Ever since the overturning 
of Roe v. Wade. The country has been dominated by the talk, including, in a particular in politics, this state right in the middle of it. Everybody up for election on state races, including the governor's race. It will be Tim Walls against Scott Jensen. John Rash and DJ Tice are here from the Star Tribune editorial board on the John Schuster Caldwell Banker Hotline. John, it's pretty simple. Tim Walls is saying Scott Jensen is an extremist. Scott Jensen is saying the same about Tim Walls. In your opinion, who is telling the truth? That both are not necessarily telling the truth. And, you know, the view of what's extreme on this issue in particular, you know, will depend on how one views the issue of reproductive rights. The one thing I'm confident of is this is the kind of argument that Governor Walls wants to have, considering that polls across the country reflect that the previous status quo with Roe v. Wade pulled higher than overturning it, as the Supreme Court, of course, just did. It also puts the campaign conversation away from public safety and some of the other issues where Democrats in general, Governor Walls in particular, may feel vulnerable. And so he's glad to enter into this kind of a conversation and probably will energize his campaign a little bit in an election that seems quite close several months away from now. How about you, DJ? Well, I certainly think it's true that the court Whatever else one thinks of, of the ruling, uh, they have set off a detonation that, you know, has the power to alter the course of the of the uh, stream here in the midterm elections, like as nothing else does. Um, and the Democrats certainly see it as potentially, uh, you know, altering it in their favor. Uh, if nothing else was really working, this is an issue that that you know mm-hmm. they feel as if they've got uh, the the upper hand. Uh, and, uh, you know, certainly it's it's working better for them than, than crime and inflation and uh, and all the rest. Uh, so they'd rather talk about this than than all those other things. Uh, you know, I think as time goes on and if the discussion continues, people become a little better informed than they are, frankly, on what it means and and doesn't mean in Minnesota and in other states. Uh, you know, I think it's actually going to be a fairly close division as to to where people come down. And it may become a little bit difficult in Minnesota, at least, where really for now nothing's going to change because we have a state constitutional uh, ruling that uh, prohibits abortion under the state constitution. Uh, You know, making too much of this may seem a a little bit like an ideological uh, fixation rather than a practical concern for Minnesotans. Uh, and uh, that, I don't know exactly how that will how that will play. On the other hand, you know, Jensen's position on rape and incest and so on does seem, you know, kind of at the edge uh, about as far uh, uh, to the right as you can be on it. Uh, so, you know, he may make it a little bit easier for the uh, for the DFLers to to, to make it an issue. Jensen, yeah, I mean, uh, no exceptions for rape and incest, although in the story today, it seemed like he was giving himself maybe a little bit of leeway, but saying it's really on a case-by-case basis. To both you guys, I guess, DJ, you chime in first. 
Walls and Lieutenant Governor candidate Matt Burke have wrote, uh, Jensen and, and Burke have both raised this idea that Walls has been in favor of abortions as late as the eighth and ninth month. The Walls campaign has pushed vigorously back at that. Is there ever a point where Tim Walls has said that? I'm I'm not aware of it, but I can't claim to have uh, researched it. But it seems is anybody asking him now? I mean, he can certainly say what he thinks about it now. Yeah. Has he done that? I, He's, he, I what I've heard is yeah. him saying, I've never said that. Well, what do you say today? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, that's fair. Uh, yeah. You know, would, he, would he sign a bill that just flatly outlawed abortions after X week? Ask him that question and see if you can get a straight answer. I'll bet it won't be easy. <laughs> I would think so also, John, because his comeback is going to be, I can't blanket statement due to the health of the mother and again that maybe benefits what jensen and burke want to say about this indeed that may be accurate both in terms of he can't blanket statement because you know even uh, scott jensen would make an exception for the life of the mother um and so you know that may be a rhetorical way out of this debate to determine you know, which side is considered more extreme. This might be one of the dynamics that narrows the gap a little bit, as DJ suggested, and that certainly may happen. But in general, as most Minnesota voters just think of the issue in a broader context, they they think that, you know, one candidate is for the status quo, which is polling higher across the country, and one candidate reflects more of the Supreme Court decision to send it back to the states and thus to overturn it in this case and that's less popular so um you know i think that other factors always will come into play many news events may and indeed probably will happen between now and early november that might shift the dynamic of of what people focus on here but it's quite clear that the wells campaign is, is embracing this debate for sure gentlemen thanks so much we'll talk soon appreciate it pleasure Thank you. John Rash, DJ Tice from the Star Tribune editorial board.